from Hosea, chapters 1 and 2. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord God began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. The Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lohurama, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another song, and then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Amai, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. And the people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show love to my children, because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and the gold for which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take away my corn when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop at her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her wines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. 
I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the Valley of Acre a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one that I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, one of my morning routines is to wake up from my bed and head down the stairs and pick up a day's newspaper. And I'll sit down at my dining table with a bowl of granola and enjoy each section of the paper, starting from the front section, from front to back. And I'll flip through the metro section to find out what's going on through the, through the region. And i got to admit, I don't usually read the sports section. One thing I always read is found in the style section. It's a column by Carolyn Hacks saying, Ask Carolyn. It's an advice column. People write in asking for her input on their problems, usually with relationships and conflicts. Usually, they're asking Carolyn to confirm that their position is right. And usually, Carolyn chastises them for their position. Kind of like this week, on Wednesday, a woman, uh, a mother, wrote into Carolyn asking her to, about her daughter, who is a nurse and has uh, not allowed her mother to come into contact with her for this entire time because of the COVID precautions. And so she writes to her, uh, to Carolyn, saying, we're so upset at not being with our family. When do you think we can ease up and be together again? Signed, lovesick. So Carolyn responds. As a child, did she, that's her daughter, ever run to ask the other parent when one of you said no? Yeah, your daughter said no. So please don't shop advice columns for a yes. Brutal honesty. You can always count on Carolyn to put you in your place and to point out your blind spots. Now we can all chuckle at that story, but I think we're often a little more like this woman who wrote in than not. We come to relationships and love with our expectations, but we often don't think of love 
as patience, as discomfort, and as sacrifice. And perhaps it's because love is such a wonderful concept and it's sung about, it's told about, but we're not really sure what it is all about. Is it passionate intimacy and commitment? Is it sex? Is it finding someone, a partner to share your life with and have your dreams together? We come to this idea of love with our experience and with our inspirations, but it seems really elusive. And even as Christ followers, we have this nebulous idea of love that we project upon the God of love that we find in Scripture. We have songs that we've been singing about, which are truthful and accurate that we sung this morning. One, another song that we often sing here begins, the love of God is greater far than any pen or tongue can tell. God's love is so big that we can't even talk about it sufficiently. A couple years ago, there is a, uh, John Mark McMillan wrote a song that was very popular it begins with, he is jealous. That's God. God is jealous for me. He, like a hurricane, I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his mercy and of his wind. We love the scriptures about God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in John 3.16. Romans 8.39 says, for what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? We love verses like this. But what is that love that God is talking about? It's often elusive. And we project what we think love is upon God. So what do we do with all this? If you've been around the Christian community long enough, you've probably heard preachers talk about the different kinds of love that we find in Scripture. You go to the Greek in the New Testament, and there's four different words for love. Storge, filio, eros, and agape. And if you go to the Old Testament, preachers will talk about the two Hebrew words for love, chesed and ahav. Yet with all these words and definitions, no single word or combination of words fully captures what God's love is like, let alone how it impacts each one of us and how to live that out. And that's why we need illustrations to form uh, a story uh, and, and art and film and song to help capture the breadth and the depth of God's love for us. But they still only go so far. It's when we begin to experience love that it takes it to a whole other level. That's why we're starting this new series from the book of Hosea called Pursuing Love. And we heard some very graphic descriptions. So it's like, how does this connect? Our lives, you see, are this living exploration of understanding love of experiencing love and of pursuing love. But when we come to the words of scripture and the story in there, we find that there's a different kind of love that we uh, encounter. It's a love that's pursuing us. It's God's pursuing love. And over these next few weeks, I hope that Hosea would challenge what we understand of love and how they apply to relationships and begin to reframe the idea of God's love and how he's revealed it to us and to the world. And in doing so, that would help us to move into a deeper and broader love for others around us that reflects God's love for the world.
Now, whenever we come to the section of the book called the prophets, it's very important that we understand what's going on in the context of the prophet that's prophesying. Now, in Hosea's time, the people of Israel had been split into two kingdoms. This is after King Solomon, kind of the zenith of Israel's history. And so now they had divided because of factions and uh, disagreements. There's a southern kingdom of Judah, and there's a northern kingdom of Israel that you see. I think it's on the screen there for you. Hosea was born in a time of Israel, the northern kingdom, when it's prosperous, but it was very precarious. We're told in chapter 2 that Rebecca just read for us that they were prosperous in wool, in gold, in silver, and in abundant harvests. Israel had a strong, wealthy class and a strong army, but that came at the expense of justice for the marginalized and vulnerable. Their prosperity was very precarious, and it's in these opening chapters that they're experiencing this. Hosea and Amos Hosea's counterpart, who are prophesying to the kingdom of Israel, warned that this nation was about to end. And God shows up and calls Hosea to deliver this kind of message to Israel, to reveal God's love for Israel. But unlike what we might imagine a prophet might do, Hosea doesn't go down to the town square or to the White House outside or to the Capitol Hill or march down the National Mall to deliver a, a, a press conference or deliver a, a preaching message. What does God ask Hosea to do? In verse 2, we're told, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. When we think of love, it's often uh, easy to think of these Instagram perfect images uh, curated for everyone's admiration. We think of professionally photographed uh, Christmas cards of, a, of yourself or of a couple of your family with matching clothing and a pithy statement to go along with it. But for those who come to experience real and deep love, we find that it's in these hard and messy and challenging circumstances that we often realize what real love looks like. How does God choose to reveal his love to Israel at this time? In Hosea, it's through a messy family. A really messy, complicated, dysfunctional family. Do you know any of those? When we begin to read Hosea, it kind of punches you in the face. And I, t I invite you to take the time this week, maybe to read through the whole book of Hosea. There's a lot of foreign things going on there, but it kind of punches you in the face with the kind of images that Hosea uses about God's loving relationship with Israel. I mean, who would post something like this? To compare God to pus in a wound in Hosea 5 verse 12. Who would think that imagine we'd be compared to an oven or a stubborn mule in uh, chapter 4, verse 16, or Israel is like frightened birds in 11.11? It's not your typical Hallmark Valentine's cards or Instagram-worthy inspirational images. I invite you to share that on your Facebook feed. Now, the dominant image that we find in Hosea is that of a prostitute or promiscuous woman, as the NIV renders it. 
In fact, it's not just an image or a metaphor for Hosea to speak of. It's, it's a reality that he is called to experience for himself. The Jerusalem Bible translation almost conveys the merciless brevity of the original language. Take a look at this. Go, marry a whore, get children by a whore, for a country itself has become nothing but a whore by abandoning Yahweh. And if you think seeing that word three times is bad enough, the original language actually uses it four times. It, it repeats the verbal root twice for emphasis, calling Israel a whoring whore. God was calling Hosea to do on a smaller scale what God has been doing all along, to give his love to a partner with a history and a wandering eye and a wandering heart. Now, just a quick pause there. That was a lot of tough words to hear. Now, the use of the word prostitute or whore here is not intended as a judgment on the value of woman compared to man or the circumstances that drive a person to take those actions. This is not really about rights and faults. It's about righteousness and faithfulness. It's not rights. It's righteousness. It's not faith. Uh, it's not faults. It's about faithfulness. The focus on, is on someone who has been unfaithful in the past, and God tells Hosea that she will continue to be unfaithful in the future in the marriage. And this marriage between Hosea and Gomer is a living illustration of Israel's relationship with the living God. And how did Israel demonstrate her unfaithfulness? Israel had merged their faith in God with faith in the Canaanite um, god Baal, the fertility god. And they had merged worship of God and worship with Baal so much that they didn't even know who they were worshiping anymore. They had forgotten the Torah and adopted the Canaanite social and religious uh, views of the world. They had forgotten the terms of the partnership of who they were called to trust, God and God alone. That God gave uh, the, the rules of the partnership, the rules of terms of engagement to Moses in the, on a mountain in the desert at Sinai. And after delivering them from slavery, out of Egypt. They had merged their faith with the wider cultural context that was contrary to God's character. I wonder if we see any of that going on in our day and age. But it's been something that's been going on for ages. In Hosea, we are reminded of God's love, but not without forgetting the seriousness of sin. Actions that betray our failure to trust in God as God. And it's what the Bible calls idolatry. And in Hosea, those who are unfaithful to God in their idolatry are more like prostitutes than faithful partners in a marriage relationship. The point of this marriage and prostitution imagery is not that marriage is better than singleness, but that it points to our inclination to turn away from God for our sense of identity, for our sense of meaning, and for our sense of purpose. We're told that Gomer had a wandering heart before and will have a wandering heart during the marriage. In Hosea 2 verse 5, God describes to the children about the mother. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Gomer's wandering describes Israel's and our wandering. 
Sometimes our unwandering and our unfaithfulness is very clear and destructive. It's hurtful to others. It's hurtful to ourselves. But more often than not, our wandering is a little less outright, but it's just as insidious. Gomer sought after other lovers to provide for her food, water, basic materials for life. How often do we look for things that we consider are good, perhaps even essential to our survival? Like confidence in our abilities, our concern for the marginalized, our love and care for family members, and just wanting to work to care for them. That's essential, isn't it? But where these things detract from our relationships with others and with our relationship with God, we too might find ourselves pursuing other lovers. How do I know when an idol and my heart is wandering and an idol is beginning to form in this factory of idols that is my heart? Often it's when I look for justifications for my decision that aren't grounded in God's love and God's truth. I can recognize idols forming in my heart when I seek out voices to confirm what I want to hear. And I ignore those voices that tell me what might be contrary to what I might like to believe. And often I can tell idols are beginning to form in my heart and my heart is wandering when I experience deep and intense fear or intense anger when something is threatened. And that something is usually another lover, another idol that's meant to be God. I wonder, if you're honest with yourself, where do you find your heart wanders towards? See, a wandering heart not only hurts our relationship, a relationship, but it begins to bear fruit that hurts others and ourselves, but especially our relationship with the living God. If Gomer represents Israel, God's people, then Hosea's children represents, uh, represent individual Israelites whose worship, their worship mashup of the living God and Baal was so convoluted that they were no longer recognizable as God's children. Their idolatry led them to fail to live rightly and justly with others. They no longer reflected the God to whom they belonged to. This is reflected in the names that God commands Hosea to give the children. Hosea's first son is named Jezreel in uh, verse 4 and 5, referring to that place that God had, that had seen King Jehu, one of the last kings of Israel, execute a bloodbath. You can find that story in 2 Kings 9 and 10 if you're interested in it. Here, there, God, command, God has not forgotten, here, God has not forgotten Israel's treachery because back then, we find a very confounding story because God anoints Jehu as king and God commands Jehu to get rid of Ahab and Jezebel and all the uh, Baal worshippers and idols in Israel. And Jehu does that. And God even commends Jehu as having done well in 2 Kings chapter 10. But here we find that Jehu's actions are still not pleasing to the Lord. He had gotten rid of the competition. He got rid of the idols but it was done out of bloodlust. It was done out of self-interest. It was the right action, but it was the wrong attitude. Jehu and Israel showed no remorse for their actions. And here God is judging them for that. The way Jehu acted did not reflect the character of a 
God's love for his people. Israel failed to live up to the terms of the partnership with the living God. And so God promises in verse 5 that he would break the bow of Israel. And Jehu and his sons would prove to be the final kings of Israel before the, Israel, the kingdom of Israel was wiped out by the Assyrian Empire. After Jezreel, Gomer has two more children, but they're likely not his. Jezreel is described as born to him, but the other two children, it just simply says, Gomer gave birth to. To the second and third child. The second is a daughter named Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved. It's to symbolize, that's a really tough. Can you imagine growing up with being called that on your birth certificate? Can you imagine the therapy you need to go through that you, I'm not loved by my parents? It's to symbolize the Lord not loving Israel and loving Judah because of, their, because of his cho choice upon them. And this is even more uh, shattering than the first child. To lose a war and a kingdom is bad because you, you had the wrong attitude. But to lose the compassion and the mercy of God is even worse. It goes to show that God's love is not coercive. It's not blind. He does not impose his love upon us. But forgiveness without a healed relationship is empty. There comes a point when spurned love is simply that. Spurned love begets forsaken love, even from the living God. Our idolatry and rejection of God has a cost. They have a third child. His name is Lo Ruhamah. Oh no, Lo Ami, which is not really God's son because it's accurate. It means not my people. See, Israel basically belonged nominally to God, but was in fact a product of the culture and the pagan world around Israel that sought to worship Baal. Now, if Gomer's unfaithfulness is an illustration of Israel's idolatry, then the children of Gomer are an illustration of Israel's failure to live rightly with God and with others. Though God was infinitely loving, his love does not come at the expense of his holy and righteous character. Our unfaithfulness to God has consequences. Our unfaithfulness, our wandering, our merging of cultural values that are at odds with the faithfulness of God make us deserving to be called not loved. Make us deserving to be called not God's people. But praise God, the story doesn't end there. And within this messy storyline, there is hope. Despite Gomer's unfaithfulness, God tells Hosea of the impending unfaithfulness, but God also tells Hosea of God's return, despite our unfaithfulness. In asking Hosea to marry an unfaithful partner, God highlights God's love for undeserving partners. God never gives up on the relationship, just like that father who never gave up on the son that we heard in the children's story. In chapter 1, verse 10, we're given hints, hints of redemption and hope. When God says, you will be called children of God, Judah and Israel will come together once again, and I will appoint a leader. Despite the tough words, despite calling sin for what it is, sin and idolatry, we find that rejection is not the end of the story. 
Israel's rejection is not the end of the story. And even God's rejection of Israel is not the end of the story. Failure to live up to the partnership could not nullify God's promises to Abraham many, many generations ago. We find hope in chapter 2, in verse 16 and 17 too. It says, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer be called, uh, no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. And throughout the chapter, throughout the book of Hosea, we see judgment, 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 consequences. But we see glimmers of hope throughout. In chapter 11, verse 8, God says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? That's another word for Israel. How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. We like to feel God's love when it makes us warm and fuzzy. But how often do we feel the pain of love that's difficult, that's spurned, that's rejected? And Hosea, Hosea offers us hope that our pain and our bitterness in a frustrated love or an unfulfilled love Painful as it may be, that is not the ultimate end of our experience. Those are opportunities to experience God's love deeply and to bear God's image that move us towards others in deep and godly love, even when it's spurned, even when it's rejected. If I had the privilege of journeying with a number of couples uh, in my years of ministry. Some of those have been rocky relationships. And it can be very painful work to see angst and conflict and the impact on loved ones. And it's especially painful to see when there's unfaithfulness involved. Our friends Eliseo and Janina, our friend, uh, um, have given me permission to share their story. Janina shared her story of experiencing Eliseo's unfaithfulness. She writes, the first time it happened, it was like a punch in the gut. I was experiencing postpartum depression from Micah, their second child, feeling pretty isolated with no parents or my family here. It happened so fast from the time of finding out to him moving out. I was stuck having to give up an apartment and do all the packing with a one-year-old and a four-year-old, and also the financial uncertainty was huge. As you know, I was an immigrant in immigrant limbo, at the time and unable to officially work. Through my hardships, God showed more than showed his faithfulness to me in the various ways he provided with jobs and a place to stay. We separated for six months while Eliseo lived with April, this other woman, and I didn't have financial support from him, so it wasn't for financial reasons that I wanted to stay in this marriage. In my mind, divorce was not a legacy that I wanted to leave for my kids, unless I heard clearly from God to move on. I can't explain it, but there's always a sense that this whole situation was bigger than me and that as long as I remained faithful, God was going to come through. I had many tell me what my rights were. I was told I was young and I could rebuild a new life. I know my friends meant well and they didn't want to see me suffer, but once, not once did I ever doubt that I was called to stand for my marriage. I fasted and prayed with a small circle of support as all the voices and advice became too much. I decided it was just going to be me and God. And in those six months, I came to know that it was just as much a process for me as it was for Eliseo. God placed an incredible amount of love in my heart for Eliseo, despite what he did to me. 
despite what I was seeing. I was able to see and identify the areas of brokenness in his life that go, went back to his childhood. Had I been angry or vindictive, I don't think I would have been able to see those areas with clarity. God really did show me that he loved Eliseo as much as he loved me, despite him hurting me and our family. Looking back in my own strength, I don't know how I stood for as long as I did. All I can say is only God could have sustained me through it all. Over the past years, I've come to see their relationship restored. They both love God and are serving God in their church. And this story is by no means an example of how every relationship is meant to turn out. But I'm always struck by the godliness of Janina's faith and her faithfulness and her trust in God. She experienced and demonstrated God's pursuing love, long-suffering love in the midst of rejection and unfaithfulness. You know, in Hosea, we are reminded that God's love isn't distant. It's not a concept. It's not just a couple of words and a good song. It's felt in the mess of Hosea's life. And in accepting God's plan for his life, Hosea submitted his wishes to God's will. He set himself up to feel and to uh, know just a bit of the bitterness of the pain that God feels in his love for his people. He understood Gomer's adultery represented the behavior of the people of the nation of Israel, God's covenant partner. And so we can find solace in God's love drawing near to us in our messes. Because we find that not only do we hear about Hosea, a few generations later, we hear about another Hosea, a greater Hosea who comes to us in the person of Jesus, one who accepts God's will for his, for his life, who submits completely to God's will, who experiences the bitterness of God's pain, who experiences rejection and in his own life, but in future rejection in our lives as we, our wandering hearts continually turn away from him. But in Jesus, we see an even clearer illustration of God's pursuing love for us and for the whole world, a people with a history of wandering hearts and who will continue to have wandering hearts. Yet God loves us and changes us and restores us. When we put our trust in Jesus with repentance and faith, we find healing, we find hope, and we find true love. Let's pray. God, we say that we are longing to be loved, and we long to love well. But we often, we have to admit, I admit, that my idea of love is so minuscule, is so tainted by my own experience and my own uh, motivations. But when we look to Hosea, when we look to you, Jesus, ultimately, we see what pursuing love looks like. May we be changed by your love. May we be convicted of our own wandering hearts and be drawn back to you and enjoy this deep and broad love that you have called us to experience, but not only to experience for ourselves, but to share with the world around us.
Would you do that in our lives for your glory and for your son's namesake? We ask these things. Amen.